Today we're going to continue in our sermon series in Genesis chapters 37 to 50 titled, Worst Thing, Best Thing. And so this morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 44 verse 18 through chapter 45 verse 15. You can find that on page 38 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Let me give you a little bit of information about today's sermon so that you can follow along more effectively. The title of today's sermon is The Sent One. And as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they begin their journey of reconciliation, we encounter one of the places in the Bible that most clearly pictures how God alone can minister wholeness by taking the very worst thing and bringing about the very best thing. That's going to come out in two angles. First, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 45, the worst thing being others' evil worked against us, and the best thing being God's good worked through it. And then in verses 9 through 15, the worst thing being our evil worked against others, and the best thing being God's good worked through it. Well, since today is so long in its passage length rather than standing to read it all at once. I'm going to be reading it verse by verse as we go along. But let us posture our hearts in such a way, church, that we can say, just like we sang a minute ago, of God's word, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, when I was 25 years old, I was sitting at dinner with friends in Nairobi, Kenya, and I suddenly passed out. I would find out later that I'd slumped over onto my friend's shoulder, fallen to the floor. They had laid me in the living room floor, and when I woke up, they were standing over me because I appeared to be having a seizure. They took me to the hospital. I was in the hospital for a week where they ran all kinds of tests to see what was going on with my body. And I remember at the end of that week, a nurse came, sat at the end of my bed, and she said, all the tests have have checked out, you're physically healthy. But I want you to know, Brad, that when it comes to your mental and emotional health, you are a very unhealthy young man, and you need help. And so that wasn't the first physical breakdown that I had experienced in my young life that left me hospitalized for a week. But it was the first one where I began to address the mental and emotional and spiritual causes behind it. The counselors that I was so blessed to have in the decade following that moment, they've all helped me to deal not just with what was on the surface, but with the iceberg underneath the surface. That is the unresolved pain that came from my story. So here's a glimpse of the process that they taught me to walk through that I continue to use today. And by the way, when we did um, care and counseling training before COVID and all that fell apart, um, this is part of what we used and taught in that training. First of all, I was to go back to a particular impactful experience in my life, something that I lived. And as I entered into that experience again, I was to allow myself to feel the emotions of that experience, what I felt at that time. And then I was to pull from that an interpretation. I would think back to, how did I interpret? What meaning did I assign to that experience? And then flowing from that would be a script. That is how I interpreted the rest of my life on the basis 
of that experience and those emotions and the interpretation that came from it. But the ultimate work, the the hard work, was to get to a rewritten script. That is, how God reinterprets life. How he takes what meaning I had assigned, and he doesn't change the experience because the experience can't be changed. The emotions can't be changed from that moment. But the reinterpretation can allow me to live differently because I see what God was doing in and through that circumstance in my life. Now, why do I share this at the beginning of a sermon? This is not a counseling session, is it? Because I believe it is reflected in the story of Joseph, and especially in today's passage. Here we have a man who has experienced unbelievable pain in his story. He had unimaginable evil worked against him by those who were the closest to him. And since interpretations and I'm sorry, since the Bible doesn't give us the details, we can only imagine the emotions and interpretations and scripts by which he may have lived while surrounded by Egyptian polytheism. That means he didn't have community around him to help him work through this. No counselors were available to Joseph in his day. And yet, in today's passage and throughout the rest of Genesis... We see a man who is learning to live by a rewritten script. Thanks be to God. But that doesn't just apply to Joseph, but also to his family. In his favoritism, Jacob had worked evil against Joseph's brothers. And then in their jealousy, they had worked evil against Joseph. And so look, the unresolved pain from our stories doesn't just flow from the ways that we have been wounded, but how we have also wounded others. The fear, guilt, and shame that we see right in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin against God, that same fear, guilt, and shame can reign deep down in our iceberg and continually affect things on the surface, often without us even knowing As a result of the past. Listen, the penalty of those wounds that we cause to others is forgiven. But often, if we're honest, the consequences can linger. You see, these brothers have no doubt had their own emotions and interpretations and scripts to cope with from the fallout of their sins. And yet, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And we get to watch as he refuses to let these brothers cope and brings their past into the light so that he can heal it. So look at this. God's loving discipline over the past three chapters has already made a huge difference, made Judah a different man. This is the guy who was the ringleader in selling Joseph into slavery and who commanded his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, to be burned alive without trial for the same sin that he himself had committed. Like, we're talking about a murderous human trafficker, okay? There was no fear of God before his eyes, Psalm 36, verse 1. And yet, when faced with the choice to sacrifice his brother Benjamin and destroy his father in order to save himself, we read in verse 18 of chapter 44, Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, 
Oh, my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Do you hear the humility that is coming out of this prideful man? And then in great detail, he describes the conversations that they have had with their father who's been debilitated with grief over their sin. And he acknowledges Joseph's death. And he explains that he had taken responsibility to bring Benjamin back home. And how, if he did not bring Benjamin back home, he had committed to take the shame on himself forever. Then... He makes this desperate appeal to Joseph in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You see, by the grace of God, the murderous human trafficker comes to sacrifice himself. Truly, there is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Broken people bless people, like we talked about last week. And as we've said before, this is the moment that Joseph finally sees the change he was looking for and reveals himself to his brothers. This scene is beautiful. And yet at the same time, it is an insufficient sacrifice. Imagine if Joseph took him up on this offer. What would it be like? What would happen? The brothers return home with the loss of another brother. Jacob continues to be wrecked by grief and resentment. Judah rots in jail. And Joseph has revenge, but no resolution. You see, we need more than our own effort to heal from others' evil worked against us and our evil worked against others. We need God to minister wholeness in the way that only He can. And so let's look at the first angle in which He does this in verses 1 through 8. The worst thing being others' evil worked against us and the best thing being God's good worked through it. We pick up today's story at the beginning of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So notice that there is a tremendous intimacy to this moment. Like no doubt what transpires here would soon be made known. And even still up to today as it is made known to anybody who reads Genesis. But in this moment, before reconciliation could be proclaimed, reconciliation had to take place among the brothers who had betrayed and abandoned him. As this stoic kind of formality of the palace clears, you see like everybody's rushing out, something's going on. Then the dam of emotions that's wrapped up with Joseph's wounds, like it breaks open in a flood. Verse 2, and he wept aloud. So that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Okay? This ain't just crying. This is what we call wailing. 
Wailing is something that doesn't really have a place in American culture, but it does in many other cultures. I have vivid memories very often when I lived in East Africa of sitting in my home in the quiet of the evening and suddenly hearing this really creepy noise. And I learned quickly that it was the sound of wailing, which meant that someone had just passed away. And neighbors would bless that family by gathering to them and wailing with them. Now, Americans would probably view that as an inappropriate public display of emotion. We value the ability to control the expression of your grief. We'd say to ourselves, man, it ain't worth it to embarrass myself like that. I'll wait till I get home or I'll just hold it inside. But, and I say this to a lot of people, many of you in this room, if you experience the loss of something that has value, you know what it is worthy of? Grief. Grief. Now, of course, if it's something that doesn't have value, then as we say, don't cry over spilled milk, right? But if it does have value and you don't let the dam of grief break, then what you're functionally saying is, this is not worthy of my grief. It does not have value. And that is how a soul gets clogged like an artery. If you won't acknowledge a wound, then how will you ever get the medicine to heal it? So put yourselves in the shoes of Joseph for a moment. Regardless of his power and prestige and wealth that he has gained in life, consider what he has lost in those 16 years that can never be regained. His childhood. His family. In a context where family was everything. His communion with his father and brothers that he loved. His dwelling in God's promised land. His youthful, simple view of life and the world. His rite of passage of Jacob hand-picking a bride for him. His most formative years in his own language and his own culture. His reputation without the stigma of false accusation. And... His purity protected from prison cells and sexual exploitation by those in power. His life without the living wound of trauma. This is not just water under the bridge. And I think there are many reasons that Joseph wails in this moment. Even though he's had 16 years To get it out of his system. That's what we often do with one another, right? When are you going to get over this? That was so long ago. Just get over it. Move on. Your life is better now. It's not that bad. But Joseph had 16 years to get it out. He's still wailing with his brothers standing there. I think it's like the funeral of that little boy Joseph that he never had. Andrew Peterson captures this in the lines of a song where he's describing Adam... At the end of Genesis 3, kicked out of the Garden of Eden, separated from God spiritually. Adam stands before the flaming sword at the gate of Eden, and he knows he can't go back in. Andrew Peterson writes this, It was there on the page of the book that I read. The boy grew up, and the yearling was dead. He stood at the gate with the angel on guard, and wept at the death of his little boy heart. 
You see, Joseph had every reason to offer up loud cries and tears in the face of the reality that he could have been saved from death, but he wasn't. I'll mess you up. And so now to speak the following words to his brothers would have been like rising from the grave, coming back from that funeral and standing alive in their midst. Verse 3, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Now what a moment. It may seem strange that Joseph reveals himself along with this question about his father. They've already told him, if you remember, that Jacob is still alive. So why would he ask this again? Well, we need to understand that the Old Testament sense of being alive includes the idea of wholeness and well-being. Joseph doesn't just want to know if his father is alive, but if he is flourishing. And that may show us what Joseph's deepest grief was, missing his father and the absence that was causing him pain. Furthermore, with Jacob as the last living patriarch, the embodiment of the people whose name he carries, Israel, we can say that Joseph's affection is for God's Old Testament people, despite the evil against him. What is the relevance of this to us today? Well, listen, church, if you are to love God's people, the church today, it will not be on the basis of their loveliness. I'll tell you that. Recently just read the autobiography of Eugene Peterson. One of the quotes that stood out to me was, churches are like mountains. They're beautiful, but they can kill you in 20 different ways. Okay? And I believe it. You ought to know it if you've been around them. We're imperfect, sinful people who are still works in process. If you are to love God's church, it will not be on the basis of their loveliness, but on the basis of God's covenant love that remains despite their wounds against you. Now, on the other side of this moment, you can probably imagine why the brothers were speechless, okay? To be dismayed is to be terrified, horrified. Not only would it be like seeing a ghost, but in an instant, all their betrayal and abandonment would have flashed before their eyes. And then reigning over it, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that would consume them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27. But listen to the words of good news starting in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Like, man, there is so much here that I want to walk through. I, just, I want to go through it one, one phrase at a time. 
But I read it in full because I want you to see that three times Joseph says the same thing. God sent me. And you know what that is? That's a rewritten script. There were the experiences of what Joseph lived. The emotions of what he really felt. The interpretations that may have come from that. The script, you sold me. Perhaps, God, you abandoned me. And yet the rewritten script, God sent me. He did not abandon me. And this is rewritten so profoundly that he can say to his brothers, come near to me, please. Like, do you see the fruit of the Spirit on display right here? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Come near to me, please. Self-control. Come near to me, please. I'm going to take care of you now. No. Come near to me, please. Not get over here and put your teeth on the curb, but so tender that despite their terror, they come. But not in a way that excuses. Joseph doesn't say, oh, what you did was okay. You know, it's, it's water under the bridge. It's no big deal. No, he says, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery, whom you sold into Egypt. I remember, like when I first started sharing my wounds with my counselor, and I would get to the end of a terrible experience of great pain. And I would say, you know what? What they did was okay. It wasn't that bad. It was not a big deal. And my counselor made this observation. Wait a minute. Do you hear that you're saying that over and over? Do you know that those things are not okay? They're not okay. Listen, you don't heal. And those who wounded you don't heal by making excuses for their sin against you. The ultimate outcome of gospel wholeness is grace. But the gospel doesn't get to that grace without first addressing the broken law. Okay? And I think that's part of what Joseph has been doing over these past three chapters. We talked about it before, the sun and frost that God has used to break open the brothers to do a work. So now he turns to forgive and comfort them so that they may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. He's saying to them, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You see, the old script had said, God wasn't there when the good was taken from my life. And then the rewritten script says, when the good was taken from my life, God was ultimately working new life. You see, this reflects this mysterious balance of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. These are doctrines that we we hold to at Antioch, but then we work out With deep humility. The brothers had indeed worked evil against Joseph. But God had used it as a part of his greater plan. To bring Joseph to Egypt to preserve the people of God. Now I say this knowing that the biggest objection to Christianity in our time. 
doesn't usually come from an intellectual argument. But it often comes from people's deep personal sense of the problem of evil. It so goes, if there is a God, how can he allow so much evil in the world? And if he is good, then he must not be powerful enough to stop it. And if he is powerful enough, but he doesn't, then he must not be good. And listen, as believers, as those who cling to the doctrines of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, like we can respond to people broken by the problem of evil, maybe even hostile over the problem of evil, we can respond with a defensive apologetic formula that usually communicates that we care more about being right than being grieved. Okay, But you know where that kind of posture breaks down, not just for them, but for us? When something really terrible happens in your life. And then you use that formula to measure the really good thing that's coming from the really bad thing. Now, Joseph, he gets the rare privilege of seeing that formula work. You did this evil, it was crazy terrible, but God brought this good that is crazy good from it. That's great for Joseph. We don't usually get to see things in this life in that light. The doctrines of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are meant to lead us not to a formula that keeps grief at bay. They are meant to lead us to a conviction of faith that's been wrung out like an old dishcloth. Here it is. That God alone can take even the very worst things that others throw at us and use it to change our lives for the better. Even when we can't see it. And there's our first angle. You sold me, but God sent me. Here's our second one this morning in verses 9 through 15. The worst thing being not just others' evil worked against us, but if we're honest, our evil worked against others. And the best thing then being God's good worked through it. In the first half of this passage, we find ourselves looking primarily upon Joseph where it's really easy to see the good that God worked. But in the second half, we turn our eyes to the brothers. And here is how good God is. Here is how good God is. He can work good not just to the one sinned against, but to the sinner. Verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So first of all, I want you to see that as soon as a work of true repentance has taken place in the brothers, not only are they saved from Joseph's wrath, but they are sent on Joseph's mission. 
Joseph begins and ends his address here with the same command. Hurry and go. Hurry and go bring Jacob and the rest of the family. Like this is the full circle of how God ministers wholeness. He doesn't just reconcile these evildoers, but he then makes them ministers of reconciliation. Psalm 51.13 in the message says this, Lord, give me a job teaching rebels your ways so that the lost can find their way home. Who in God's book is most qualified to be messengers of grace? The rebels who have needed its shelter most. The brothers are no less sent than Joseph. Sent with a message of reconciliation. Joseph says to them, and now your eyes see. You must tell of all that you have seen. Here's why evildoers can be sent ones. One, because they go on the basis of what God has done. They didn't make something happen, but something happened to them. They are now eyewitnesses, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 4.20. I'm wearing this t-shirt today that is a representative logo of our identity as eyewitnesses. And we are eyewitnesses not because we opened the tomb up, but the tomb was opened up and revealed to us that Jesus is no longer there. Therefore, we have something to tell others about we are eyewitnesses but also too evildoers can be sent ones because they also come on the basis of what God has done Joseph says to them you shall be near me and I will provide for you the very nature of being sent with something to offer others depends on it being provided by someone greater than you we say as we go and proclaim what we proclaim is not ourselves 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. So here is the audacity of God's grace. These brothers, who according to their old script, were the ones who took life, now according to their new script, are the ones who give life. Think about this. They are sent to go save the lives of God's family by bringing them to Egypt. But in so doing, in a sense... They are also saving your lives who sit here today trusting in Jesus Christ because they are carrying the seed that will eventually lead to Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. The enemies of the gospel have become the heralds of the gospel. That's the turn in God's hands here in this passage. And you know what doctrines that brings out? Divine sovereignty. And human responsibility. Joseph says to them, Yeah, you had made me a slave to all Egypt, but God has made me Lord of all Egypt. He took the worst that you could throw at him and he used it to bless the world. Come on, y'all. That's our God. Go ahead and try, nations, to do the worst thing you could possibly do toward our God. He'll sit in heaven and laugh and say, I put a, I put a son. On Mount Zion, what are you going to do? All right? You take whatever you throw at me. I will turn it and I'll bless the whole world with it. That's our God. That will relieve some anxiety for you today. If you know your God can do that in this crazy, messed up world. He's working something, not only in your individual life, 
but in all of history and all of the future. And you see, the brothers, they're going to need the gracious audacity of that truth because as they go back to report and dance and shout over this good news with their family, guess what else is going to have to come out? Father, there's something we need to tell you. You see, human responsibility means that the sin may be forgiven, but often the consequences linger and will have to be worked out through repentance and forgiveness. Now, where this can come into play most commonly and most painfully is with those closest to us in our childhood, relevant to the story, right? And namely, our parents. No matter how wonderful families are, they inevitably leave some measure of wounds on one another because they're made up of sinners who dwell closely together. Now, it's in these relationships that many of our most impactful scripts get written. Now, I'm not saying this in order to lead to the dishonoring of parents by witch-hunting their shortcomings. Nor am I saying this to excuse what they did or failed to do. But instead, I'm saying this in order for us to remember that it is often these very wounds that God uses to draw us to himself in the first place and then cause us to be desperately dependent on him as we are sanctified and grow. Now, I remember when we were approaching the birth of our second daughter, I was in a real bad space on the brink of another breakdown. My mom had just passed away, and a lot of things were coming through my story and messing me up real deep. And I remember talking to a friend of mine, Pastor Jamal Williams, who serves at Sojourn Midtown, and he, he spoke into my life in a really meaningful way. I was just confessing to him, like, I feel I feel so afraid because I know what's broken in me and, and I, I just know that I'm going to like break my children with that in me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to project on, th- on them the very things that are hurt in me and I, it kills me to think about them growing up and dealing with life with those kind of wounds from me. It's like I just, I don't even want to go. I don't want to be a parent. And he said, Brad, don't you know Think about your own story. Was it not the very shortcomings in your parents' lives that God used to bring you to himself and cause you to need him as you grow and are sanctified? Don't be afraid of that. Of course you're going to hurt them. But God will use not only your virtues, but also your vices as he does a work in the lives of of your children. Now, of course, that doesn't give us an excuse to just be evil to the ones that we love. But here's what it does do. It reminds us that wholeness won't come to your loved ones by you being perfect in life. It will come by God being perfect in love. His divine sovereignty worked out in forgiveness and your human responsibility worked out in repentance. 
I've mentioned this story before, but I got a friend in my life who has daughters that are much older than mine, and he continues to remind me, hey, Brad, listen, the thing that we have seen used most in the gospel formation of our daughters is those moments when we not just proclaimed and taught and rubbed in the gospel to them, but it's when we admitted to them that we had sinned against them and repented and asked for their forgiveness in order to be restored in relationship. It's a picture of what can be here as forgiveness and repentance works together. And what heart wouldn't be compelled by the picture that we see in verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that his brothers talked with him. You see Joseph goes down the line. One at a time. And an exchange is made. Their repentance and his forgiveness. And that's powerful, y'all. That's powerful. Anytime I've been in the midst of a spiritual revival, you know what I've always seen? Like not just people restored to God, but people restored to people. Not just a vertical reconciliation, but a horizontal reconciliation. God's people are not just sent to participate in the saving of souls, but in the redemption of all things. And the primary implication of that good news is corporate wholeness, not just individual wholeness. Reconciling two enemies, both to God and one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Ephesians 2, 14. Listen, when evil has been worked against us, we have power. It is the power of forgiveness. And when evil has been worked through us, we have power. The power of repentance. Put those two things together. And that's what God can do. He alone can take the very worst things that we have thrown at others. And he can use it to change their lives for the better. And ours too. Well, in conclusion today, you know, I don't know this for certain according to numbers, but pastorally I have a sense that there are more people at Antioch who are currently in some form of counseling than at any other time in the life of our church. Now, of course, some might say, well, that's not a good thing. Why would you even talk about that? Oh, your church has you know, got problems. But I'm encouraged by it. It shows me that people are paying attention to what's under the surface. And that they're not ashamed to get help in order to experience God's wholeness. Maybe it tells me, if nothing less, they just don't want to have a total breakdown like me. Okay? Being proactive in this process instead of reactive. And my desire is that we continue to grow in our ministry of care and counseling so that members can be more effectively equipped to minister to one another. So that scripts can be rewritten. So that we can watch worse things become best things in one another's lives. And that's certainly what we've witnessed in the story of Joseph. In the beginning of his sermon on today's passage, Pastor Charles H. Spurgeon says this, I need not say to you, beloved, who are conversant with scripture, that there is scarcely any personal type in the Old Testament which is more clearly and fully a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ than is the type of Joseph. And in making himself known to his brethren, he was a type of our Lord revealing himself to us. And so, church, behold God's ultimate 
worst thing turns best thing. Picture in your minds again, Joseph wailing with loud cries and tears in the face of the reality that he could have been saved from all that he went through, but he wasn't. Hear him? Weeping at the death of his little boy heart, as we said. He's like every son of Adam who stands before the flaming sword at the gate of Eden and knows he can't go back in. Now hear the words of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Speaking of the agony of Gethsemane and the agony of the cross in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Here, church, here is the better Adam standing at the gate of Eden, knowing he can go back in with just a word. But instead, he grieves all that's about to be lost and all that will be lost. Not just his physical and mental health, but his communion with his father and brothers that he loves. Now, if he cried out to the one who was able to save him, but he didn't save him, what does that mean? That'll mess you up, right? Well, if he was powerful enough to save Jesus, was he just not good enough? And if he was good enough to save Jesus, was he just not powerful enough? Like, we can come up with our own opinions on this matter, but the only answer that's faithful to Scripture is that God was both good and powerful enough He was just working something better. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know what doctrines that brings out? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You killed him on a cross, but it was God who delivered him up there. You put him in the grave, but it was God who planned it all so that he could raise him up as Lord over all things. You see, God can take the very worst thing thrown at him and use it to bless the whole world. In fact, he planned it before you even threw it. Okay? The gospel is the greatest, worst thing turned best thing in the world and gives us hope for our little worst things turned best things in life. This is the greatest rewritten script. Therefore, we have hope as we picture Joseph seemingly coming back from the dead as he reveals himself to his brothers. As Joseph does this, like, do you not see Jesus standing alive in the midst of his disciples? See the parallel, the connection there? Thanks be to God, like he doesn't just immediately go proclaiming reconciliation, but he first achieves it among the brothers who had betrayed and abandoned him. Like they are terrified and speechless with a fearful expectation of judgment to consume them. But Jesus so tenderly says, come near, touch me and see. He says it so tenderly. So full of the fruit of the Spirit that despite their terror, they come. Despite their evil against him, the broken law and broken relationship, he goes down the line one at a time and an exchange is made. 
their repentance and his forgiveness. And then finally with the assurance that when his life was being taken, new life was being given. Yes, Judah sold me, you abandoned me, but God sent me. And that's what God can do. And that is what he is coming down the line one at a time to you today. Your repentance is glad forgiveness. But not as an end in itself. There's more to this story. Picture also Joseph in the midst of that spiritual revival. Saying to his brothers, now go and hurry. Likewise... As soon as a work of true repentance had taken place in Jesus' disciples, not only were they saved from Jesus' wrath, but then they were sent on Jesus' mission. He says, now go, hurry therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is the full circle of how God ministers wholeness. Jesus doesn't just reconcile these evildoers, but then he made them ministers of reconciliation. What's your qualification to be messengers of grace? Someone might say to those disciples. Because we were rebels who needed its shelter most. That's our qualification. How audacious the rewritten script. That the ones who had forsaken Jesus are the very ones who go to represent Jesus. And that's you, church. That's your story. So I say to you, who have been reconciled to God today, go and hurry. As ministers of reconciliation. So let me land all this here. There are two scripts that can easily compete with one another. One says that followers of Jesus should just focus on the go and hurry part. Okay? So life is all about what God wants to do through you. Live on mission. Pour yourself out. The other script says that followers of Jesus should focus on the come near to me part. Life is all about what God wants to do in you. Focus on the transformational work that he's doing in you and your Christian community. In other words, if you focus on the mission, then you'll neglect the iceberg in you. You'll never get out there. I'm sorry, you'll never focus on what God wants to change inside of you. Focus on the iceberg and you'll neglect the mission. You'll just be a holy huddle who never gets out there and does anything for the world. But here's the rewritten script that I want for my life and the life of this church. That we would hold both of those things in tension. We'd hold both of those things in tension. That we would be a people who clearly see from God's word that we can't separate our coming to God without going with God. That pursuing wholeness and well-being and flourishing means the gospel flowing in us and through us. At the same time, you can't separate them. You can't have one without the other. And that's what it means to follow the sent one and for ourselves to also be sent. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. 
He said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. That sounds like something a sent one would do. Right? Do you know that every time you come to this table, you are remembering and you are announcing something to the world like a sent one? Today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is the sent one. The one through whom we can come to God and then go with God. Our tradition here in Antioch is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice and take it remembering what Jesus has done for you and what he promises to do for you on his coming return. If you're a baptized believer, come forward. If you're a believer but you've not yet been baptized, we want to call you to follow in obedience to Jesus' command to repent and be baptized. And then you can take communion after that, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't been sent on a mission because you haven't come to the sent one yet, would you come to him today? Would this be the day that you are, tra- you are reconciled to God forever? There'll be pastors and folks in the back to pray with you for any need that you have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. As we sang earlier in this gathering... We are listening to your word. Have we? Lord, I pray that we have. I pray that we have listened to the voice of your spirit speaking to us through your living word. And I pray now that your people would respond to that voice. And that in this moment, there would be little many spiritual revivals that take place in human hearts as they come before you in repentance and receiving forgiveness and being renewed and encouraged, remembering what you have done for them and what you promised to do. And that you would also, in the act of coming forward, remind people that they are acting as sent ones, proclaiming, energized, filled up in order to go back out into a broken world so that they can indeed act like sent ones with a message to proclaim, with reconciliation to minister. And Lord, for those who cannot come to this table because they have not yet confessed that Jesus is Lord, would that be what they do in this very moment? In Jesus' name, amen.